Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. I am your host, Arden Castle, and this week's episode comes from our People and Places collection. If you love visuals, I suggest checking out our YouTube channel for the video version of this interview. Enjoy! Hello and welcome. This is Health Promotion Practices Author Interviews, and my name is Arden Castle. Each episode will explore a recently published article and its author. This week, I am joined with Dr. Aditi Srivastav, author of Moderating the Effects of Adverse Childhood Experiences to Address Inequities in Tobacco-Related Risk Behaviors, which was published in January 2020, and the Empower Action Model, a framework for preventing adverse childhood experiences by promoting health, equity, and well-being across the lifespan, which was published in November 2019. So this episode is focused on the findings of her papers, which is just one part of a three-part series with Dr. Shavastav. Tune in to other episodes to hear more about her and other authors. So congratulations, you have recently published two articles on adverse childhood experiences in Health Promotion Practice Journal, one in January of 2020 and the other in November of 2019. For those of us who are not as familiar with ACEs, can you give us a quick refresher? Sure. ACEs refer to adverse childhood experiences, and the best way to think about it is what happens to you in childhood affects your adulthood. ACEs were a term that were coined in the 1997 ACEs study conducted by CDC, and two researchers there really wanted to understand why, despite providing their patients all the tools to stop smoking and to eat healthier as they were working on smoking and obesity prevention, a lot of them still went back to those unhealthy behaviors. And so after conducting this study, they actually found that childhood trauma or types of childhood trauma, which are typically experiences of abuse, neglect, and what they refer to as household dysfunction. So witnessing things like domestic violence in your home or having someone in your house that has a substance use disorder or something like that. All of those are actually what can disrupt a individual's early childhood development and then can lead them to cope with unhealthy behaviors. And so ACEs really takes us back to ask the question of not what's wrong with you, you know smoking is bad for you, but what happened to you? Why is it that you were smoking in the first place? So it it kind of even goes even one step further from prevention, right? It's even going further as to understanding why risk behaviors occur. Interesting. Thank you. And then what are some of the strengths and limitations when it comes to thinking about ACEs? So the great thing about ACEs, again, is that it's given us that framework of asking why people engage in behaviors in the first place, which we know we're trying to prevent through public health research and practice. But there are several limitations that should be considered. I think the first thing is that ACEs are very deficits focused, right? So they focus on bad things that happened to us in our childhood. But we know that everyone's life is very nuanced and complex, and that while someone may have experienced a lot of ACEs in their life, they may go on to still be successful and be able to be what we call resilient from from those experiences. And so the way in which ACEs are measured typically is through an ACE score. And I think that's what is really a limitation is that if I said yes to four experiences that were and that are considered ACEs, my ACE score would be four. Now, even if I got all the supports that I needed in my environment through people around me and was able to be successful and, you know, be resilient, I would still keep that score. It's not something that you can erase. So from a measurement perspective, it's often 
hard to show change over time because your score is not a diagnostic tool. It's just an educational tool that can't necessarily show trends over time. And so that's a limitation because we know that ACEs are not our destiny. Just because you had ACEs doesn't mean that you won't do well later in life and certainly doesn't mean that you will engage in unhealthy behaviors or have poor health outcomes in adulthood. It just means that it severely increases the risk. Interesting. And so because ACEs are kind of this static number, it's not dynamic regardless of, you know, your age or what positive experiences you've had, how do we use it as more than just a metric? So I think that we're starting to see that happen all over the country, right? So I think that ACEs in the last five years has really led to this movement around thinking about health and well-being more holistically. So it's certainly served as a frame to talk about hard issues like abuse and neglect, right? And that it's not just, quote, bad parenting that leads to that. And it's not also just those parents or those poor people, right? That's stigmatizing. So ACEs have really been a good frame to get people to understand why all of us need to care about children and why all of us need to care about ACEs. One of the things that I like to say is that ACEs aren't a kid's problem, they're a people problem. You know, even if you decide to never have kids, you still are part of a family, you're still a part of a community, and those ACEs can impact both of those things. And so I think that the frame of ACEs has really been great in helping the lay public understand why we need to take this kind of holistic approach to health and why we need to recognize that everything is connected. Health doesn't just happen in these silos, but it really is a complex interplay of, you know, our, our biology, our environment, our experiences. And it also helps us understand that as an adult, so much of what we are and who we are is impacted by our early lifehood experiences. That's really interesting and how ACEs can be used to kind of explain all of our situations, regardless of race, ethnicity. I think we see the word ACEs used a lot with the word equity and life course perspective. Can you dive a little bit deeper into how those fit into the picture? Yeah, so actually I would say, I think it's great that you have recognized that because I think that's a fairly new phenomenon. So the original ACE study was conducted in a very homogenous group of people. It was about 17,000 predominantly white college-educated males. And those are typically social determinants that you think of that are positive, right? That'll lead to better health because of systemic inequities. And what they actually found was that there were high rates of reported ACEs, even in that group that has these kind of systemic protections around them. And so one of the things that I often like to remind people is that you have this very important message to balance those ACEs. The good part is, is that it reminds us that ACEs are common across all populations, but I also think it's important for us to think about that ACEs and exposure to ACEs cannot be understood or studied without thinking about systemic racism, structural racism, inequity around us. And so one example of that is a type of ACE from the 1997 study is having a parent that's in jail or a parent that's incarcerated. And I think that a lot of scholars, they've been talking about this, is that you can't talk about parental incarceration and its effects on a child without keeping in mind the history of mass incarceration in this country. And so you're starting to see this shift into really thinking about ACEs in the context of equity. And so equity, again, is this idea that we give people what they need 
which isn't necessarily giving everyone the same thing. That means that certain people may get less, others may get more, because the goal of equity is to make sure that everyone has a level playing field, not that everyone's just handed the same thing and then continue to stay unequal in terms of where they're starting in life. And so we are starting to see two things happen in terms of the ACEs field. One, this recognition that there may be other experiences that should be considered ACEs, such as exposure to racism, discrimination, kind of going to a lot of that research and literature around how racism and discrimination can weather a person of color's biology and body. They're more likely to be predisposed to all these poor health outcomes as a result. And then also looking more at community level experiences. And so one of my colleagues up at GW, she has coined this term called adverse community environments. And so, you know, while ACEs can be adverse childhood experiences, we also have to think about how these occur in the context of communities. And so that's also where this idea of that life course perspective comes in, which is really that health should be seen across the lifespan, not just in early childhood or young adulthood or adulthood, because it's all connected, especially when you look at kind of the hypothesis that the original ACE study had, which was that these experiences are what lead to disruption in early childhood development. And if you are not developing the way that you should and meeting milestones, you're less likely to connect with people and you're less likely to be able to engage in school. And we all know that we engage in risk behaviors oftentimes because it helps us feel good in the shorter term. And so it almost becomes a coping mechanism for some of those problems that we are seeing. But the great part is, is that the life course perspective and equity conversation is also really talking about this idea of resilience and that while the same data and research shows that ACEs are linked to these poor outcomes in adulthood, we also know that with the right kind of protective supports in place, we can reverse the effects of these traumatic experiences to make sure that a kid goes on to, to succeed and do well. Excellent. Thank you for kind of giving us the background for that. I want to dive into your first paper on the Empower Action Model now that we have a good idea of ACEs. And can you give us a quick elevator pitch on this article to help us get started? Sure. So the Empower Action Model is a evidence-based framework focused on building equity, health, and well-being across the lifespan. It is grounded in key public health and community psychology theories, and it's really focused on taking that theoretical piece to the next level of actually helping communities, organizations, people that care about equity, health, and well-being develop plans for action to do so. And so it really is this very practical tool that could be used by a coalition, by an organization providing services, and even policymakers that are interested in making sure that our, our policies are better supporting kids and families. What happens to children can have long-lasting impacts into adulthood. That's why here at Children's Trust, we've developed the Empower Action Model. It's an evidence-based framework for helping communities across South Carolina create plans to build resilience and prevent adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs. The Empower Action Model recognizes that individuals and families are influenced by the communities in which they live, the organizations that serve them, and the public policies that guide how they access resources. If we want to create positive change for children, we must work across these systems, by building resilience through skills to manage stress and nurture children, growing positive outcomes through individual development, supporting positive relationships, 
creating positive environments for social emotional well-being, sharing resources that allow families to meet their basic needs. And this must all happen within inclusive environments that promote strong cultural identity for all families and in concert with policies and practices that address systemic racial inequities. Finally, we know that the effects of ACEs don't stop after childhood. The model reinforces the importance of building health, well-being, and resilience across the lifespan so that we can break the cycle of ACEs. How can the Empower Action Model help you create a plan for strong families and thriving children? Visit scchildren.org empower to learn more. Perfect, thank you. So prior to writing this paper, there were five frameworks that already attempted to model the ways in which long-term impacts of ACEs and related experiences can be prevented. So I'd like to kind of identify the limitations of these existing frameworks and talk about how your model addresses these shortcomings. The Empower Action model is made up of the following theories. It's made of the protective factors framework, the social ecological model, the life course perspective, which we've already spent some time on, and then this idea of race equity and inclusion. The social ecological model is pretty foundational to public health. It basically tells us that individuals' behaviors are not solely created based on autonomous decisions, but by the environments, the relationships, the organizations and communities, as well as the policies around them. An example of that is look at how and what is making people wear masks during the COVID pandemic, right? We know that cities and, and states that have those mask ordinances and that are actively promoting that health behavior, you're likely to see more people using masks. Whereas when you're basing it, like in South Carolina, just on the responsibility of an individual, we see a much lower uptake. And so the protective factors framework, which is the second kind of piece, is really based off of the things that different scholars have studied in various different disciplines that they have found to be beneficial to essentially mitigate the effects of ACEs. So protective factors are those things that can make sure that kids are able to really be resilient from ACEs. And then finally, race equity and inclusion is really a principle that is more of an organizational principle, right? So a lot of organizations are thinking about how they can be more racially equitable and inclusive in their decision-making process. But in this case, it is really the foundational piece of the model to make sure that everything that we are doing is grounded in being racially equitable and inclusive. One of the things that we saw when we conducted our environmental scan and literature review of what we call resilience frameworks and there are a lot of great ones out there that seek to prevent ACEs, was that action piece. So there are some incredible frameworks that have been created around protective factors. And so we based our five protective factors based off of those multiple frameworks. One of the things that we saw, though, is that while they told us what those protective factors should be, they didn't necessarily tell us how we can create those protective factors. And for those that did, you know, we built that into this model. So one of the things that we talk about a lot is that this model is really building upon incredible research that's already been out there. It's not, you know, something that we necessarily created on our own in terms of the theories. And I think that that's important. I think that that's what makes kind of that practice piece is that you have to build on what's already out there in order for it to be effective and, and, and useful. And so we really made sure that our protective factors are actionable. 
Another limitation we saw was that there were few models that were really talking about that race equity piece. So the colleague that I mentioned that does work around adverse community environments, she was really the only person out there that was talking about ACEs in the context of racism, discrimination, and a lot of those kind of structural mechanisms. That really set the stage for, well, how can we make community members and people that may not understand public health research still understand the importance of making sure that our practices are racially equitable. And so that was a piece that we, we found. And then I think most importantly, we wanted to go one step beyond just telling people the things that need to be in place, but also showing them how, giving them a roadmap. And I think that's what makes the Empower Action model so innovative, is that it's not just, oh, here are all the things that should exist. It's really giving you uh, a good way to really think about, okay, well, this is how we can do them, even though my journey might be very different than your journey, depending on the context of where I'm working or where I live. Thank you. I think it's really exciting that you were able to kind of not only pull from the limitations, but also the strengths of the other models that you were seeing and create this very action-based model that covers a lot of the current problems that we're seeing, like you're saying, structurally and systemically kind of addressing racism and the larger picture. I think that that's really exciting. So as you mentioned earlier, your model can be used by a variety of different people in different settings. Now that we have an idea of how the model operates, can you explain how someone might apply it? So as I mentioned in my kind of previous discussion, if we had just stopped at that beautiful kind of circle graphic, also shout out to our Children's Trust communications team because they're awesome, but we would have had kind of that same limitation of a lot of the models that we saw, which is that we would just tell you what the things that need to exist, but not how. And I think that this is really where it takes it one step forward and makes this a unique framework. So the major way to apply the Empower Action model is to find ways to meet what we call those optimal conditions that essentially tell you that a protective factor has been implemented on a certain level of a social ecological model in a racially equitable way. So this chart really lays out what those optimal conditions will be. So say I was a HR director at a small nonprofit in Colorado, right? And so I wanted to implement that last protective factor, share resources that allow individuals and families to meet their basic needs. And so if we look at that organizational level, the optimal condition in order to implement that would be that we create an atmosphere where employees can access resources in times of need and for self-care. And we know that all of our policies and practices on an organizational level are racially and culturally inclusive, recognizing the importance of diversity in workforce and leadership. So as a small nonprofit in Colorado, say, you know, maybe the resources that I'm able to provide are things like an employee assistance program or some sort of peer network for my employees of color or having some kind of self-care expert or mindfulness expert come in once a quarter, right? So that would be one way. But let's shift gears and say that now I'm the HR director of Google, where I have unlimited resources. For that, maybe I'd mean that I have someone in every day that you can talk to in times of need in terms of mental health, or I'm able to provide access to food for not only my employees, but also my kids. They can come eat in our cafeteria, right? Or I have more positions or opportunities or capacity to be able to support programs that are geared to really elevate voices of color, right? So you can see that there's two different kind of examples with very different 
even possibilities in terms of how much money they have, how big they are, what they can even do, but they're still attempting to meet that optimal condition of they have created an atmosphere where employees can access resources in times of need and for self-care. And so that's a very, I think, simple example, but even when you're working with, say, um, South Carolina versus where you are, California, right? The context is very different. And so we may approach things very differently in terms of what we believe is needed for self-care in this state versus California, but we're both meeting that optimal condition. And so that's how you can really apply this model is really use these optimal conditions to build that path of what are the specific strategies that you want to implement on these multiple levels to build equity, resilience, and health across the lifespan. That is really exciting. And it seems so easy to apply with all these boxes and it's so clearly laid out. I think that this is really exciting because when we usually see the findings of most research, it's a lot harder to apply, a lot harder to interact with. And I think that this is a really exciting way for us to dive right into the solutions and the actions that we can take based off of the model. So I applaud you and your organization for being able to create this in a way that that's so easy for anyone to kind of look at and, and understand how to use. And kind of lastly, I'm curious, what was it like to create a model? It was a long process and it was intentionally long because we wanted to do it well. Obviously, we were honored to be published in health promotion practice. But one of the cool things about, again, going back to an earlier discussion that we had about being in a non-academic space is that I got to work with colleagues that have never really necessarily been through the research process, but have really good experience in terms of the practical of a model. And so it was a very much a, a team approach where me and my co-authors really sat down after doing an extensive literature review, getting feedback from our partners. And we have over a hundred trainers in South Carolina focused on teaching people about the effects of ACEs. So getting feedback from them, as well as other colleagues in our organization to really understand where the needs were, where the gaps were in order to develop this. And so my role being a researcher was to really help ground this in theory and in strong theory. And again, making sure that we are building upon a lot of the great work that's happened over the last decade around ACEs. So it was a really cool process. It was a very iterative process. And we knew that, you know, the application of it is going to look very different. And that depending on where a community is or where an organization is in their journey. And we also knew as we are ourselves helping three coalitions in South Carolina implement the Empower Action model, that there would be a lot of lessons learned. So this was about two to three years of work before we got to the point where we then had focus groups and got some really crucial feedback, not only from other researchers, but practitioners, leaders in the community, and people that just know the ACEs field really well. That is really exciting, and thank you for sharing this with us. I want to go ahead and take a look at your second paper on ACEs and tobacco use. Can you give me a quick elevator pitch for this article to get us started? Yeah, so adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, like we've been talking about, lead to a lot of poor um, health and social outcomes in adulthood. However, we know that we can mitigate or reverse the effects of the toxic stress that's associated from experiencing these traumatic things by providing protective factors in a kid's life. A major protective factor is a safe, stable, nurturing relationship. 
And so this has been used as a universal strategy by the CDC in education field, social work, child welfare, you name it. This is the kind of gold standard of what we can do to help a kid that's experienced a lot of ACEs. So this paper actually looks at whether or not a safe, stable, nurturing relationship is actually effective in mitigating risk behaviors that may be associated with ACEs. And if it is, does it actually play out the same way in different racial groups? And so what we found is that it's not actually the case. So amongst white adults, those who reported ACEs and also reported that safe, stable, nurturing relationship in their childhood, they were much less likely to smoke either cigarettes or e-cigarettes compared to those who did not report ACEs and did not have protective factors. We didn't find the same thing for Black adults. We know that safe, stable, nurturing relationships are kind of considered the gold standard in ACE prevention, especially preventing the impacts of it across the lifespan. And so one of the things that I was really interested in studying was, do safe, stable, nurturing relationships actually work in different populations? And so while there's a lot of research to show that having a safe, stable, nurturing relationship can reduce negative school outcomes, as well as kind of those immediate things that we see in young adulthood, there's very little research to actually show its effect in adulthood. And so this paper studied the relationship between ACEs, smoking, both traditional and e-cigarette use, and reporting a safe, stable, nurturing relationship, and then looking at those results by race. And so what we found was that, of course, ACEs are associated with an increased risk in engaging in those smoking-related behaviors. ACEs are also inversely associated with reporting a safe, stable, nurturing relationship. So that basically means that the more ACEs you report, the less likely you are to report a safe, stable, nurturing relationship. And then what was kind of the really interesting finding was that if you looked at the population overall, you found that for an individual that reported ACEs and also reported a safe, stable, nurturing relationship in childhood, their odds of smoking traditional cigarettes or e-cigarettes decreased compared to those who did not report that safe, stable, nurturing relationship. So really reinforcing that these are really important protective relationships. However, where it got really interesting, and I think it speaks to our conversation about equity is, this did not play out the same way for white and black adults that were studied. So for white adults, that safe, stable, nurturing relationship actually did mitigate or decrease the odds of engaging in unhealthy behaviors, but for black adults, it did not. And I think that that's a very interesting and crucial finding to the conversation around ACEs because it really speaks to how we can't just focus on interpersonal or individual responses to ACEs. We got to think more broadly in terms of kind of that community and policy level resilience efforts. Also, if you think about how those safe, stable, nurturing relationships are influenced by our, our environments around us. Right. So think of the example of, you know, most kids, they go to school. That's where they are typically exposed to a nurturing adult. But also let's think about how a community of color is less likely to have access to a quality school where they retain quality teachers. And that's, you know, we could have a whole different conversation as to why. So the chances of having that safe, stable, nurturing relationship probably is going to be a little bit less compared to their white counterparts. Another example is how there are so many other stressors that affect communities of color that even despite having these strong nurturing relationships, there may be other things that are systemically happening that still lead to these poor health outcomes. And so 
we found that the results of the study to be really, really timely and promising as we kind of shift that conversation around equity and what that means in ACEs. Excellent. Thank you. And can you just specify what is a safe, stable, nurturing relationship? What might that look like for a young person? That's a really great question. So we used the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System survey, which is a mouthful, but it's the CDC's premier health survey to get this data. So we defined a safe, stable, nurturing relationship as having someone who made sure your basic needs were met in childhood and also having someone who made you feel safe and protected. There's probably a lot of other variations of how you can describe that, but in the context of our data set, those two pieces had to be present in order to be able to define a safe, stable, and nurturing relationship. Perfect. And you mentioned this equity part of it. In your paper, you're comparing tobacco use for Black and white adults. How did you arrive on those populations? So the data that I am using is South Carolina specific. When we actually look at our percentage breakdown of minority groups, Unfortunately, because this is only one year of data and because these questions are things that we had to pay for in order to collect, they aren't collected as standard questions through the CDC. We only had the ability to collect it for one year, which made us not be able to look at other racial groups besides white and black. But I think that a lot of the implications of what we found could be really discussed in the context of other minority groups whose population is increasing in South Carolina. I'll be interested to see after this year's census what that looks like. But ultimately, it ended up being a limitation that we were not able to compare all the different minority groups present in South Carolina. And ideally, you know, we would have had a much bigger data set over multiple years to look at it. But it was too important of a question to not examine now, especially as we're thinking about how, while the universality of ACEs will always be one of its strengths, really using this frame to promote equity for kids. And all you kind of touched on this using the survey from the CDC, um, can you walk me through the methodology and the variables that you were studying? Yeah, so as I mentioned, this was in the CDC's health survey. So we added questions on ACEs. So we used 10 different questions that are then collapsed into the eight traditional, and I say traditional types of ACEs because you and I talked about how there's a shift to want to include some different experiences. So these eight experiences are experiences of abuse as well as household dysfunction. Neglect is not something that's typically studied in this data set because that item didn't perform well when they were testing the psychometric properties of the ACE questionnaire. And then South Carolina specifically, we added questions on you know, basic needs being met, feeling safe and protected, as well as some other questions related to socioeconomic status in childhood. And so we treated the ACE variables very similarly to a lot of other studies that use the BRFSS. One of the things that we really made a case for is to look at ACEs in terms of aggregate experiences, not individual. So one of the things that we got pushback on is why aren't you looking at at the relationship between, for example, domestic violence and smoking and then what a safe, stable, nurturing relationship does. And I think the whole point of ACEs is to help people understand that we are not seeing the whole picture if we continue to treat outcomes and indicators as individual things, when the reality is kids experience things in a very kind of fluid, flexible, nuanced way. And so we really looked at adults who reported one or more ACEs versus adults who reported no. To really build that case that even one, even one 
adverse childhood experience type can absolutely impact health and social outcomes in adulthood if it's not mitigated or if there aren't protective factors in place. For the smoking variables, we use the standard variables that the BRFSS provides, and they recently started adding a lot of questions around e-cigarette use, as we've generally seen an uptick of that while there's been a decrease of traditional cigarette use. Interesting. Thank you. And now, why don't we walk through the findings really quickly? I know you kind of mentioned them before, but if we can just kind of quickly talk through the different findings of your paper. Yeah, so the first finding was that respondents who had experienced one or more ACEs, they were more likely to report smoking tobacco, they were more likely to report e-cigarette use, and they were less likely um, to report having a safe, stable, nurturing relationship in childhood. Um, And that's pretty consistent with all of the ACE research that's been done that, you know, ACEs increase your risk for health and social outcomes. And again, our comparison group was respondents who did not report any ACEs. Again, the relationships that we looked at was ACEs, smoking outcomes, and then whether or not having a safe, stable, nurturing relationship moderated that association. And so, you know, we found that amongst Black adults, those who reported ACEs had a 2.25 times higher odds of smoking compared to their counterparts with no ACEs. And for Black adults that had ACEs, they had a 1.56 times higher odds of smoking e-cigarettes versus those who did not report ACEs. So pretty consistent with what we would have expected, especially with the research that's been done previously around ACEs and health outcomes. So you could see here that the results for white adults was pretty similar, if not a little bit more drastic. So ACEs increased uh, the odds of smoking about four times higher compared to those who did not have ACEs amongst white adults. And then you saw about a 2.95 or three times greater odds of smoking e-cigarettes amongst white adults that reported ACEs versus those who did not. So you see that the findings were unexpected, but not surprising given the current evidence from other public health research. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so a lot of the research that's been done on the effects of racism on health. For the longest time, we've talked a lot about safe, stable, nurturing relationships being the evidence-based strategy for responding to ACEs. But when we really think about how relationships are formed, how quality relationships are sustained, all of that research that's been done on the effects of racism, racism being an underlying cause of health disparities, you know, while it was unexpected because we always assumed that having someone that made sure that you were okay would be enough, it makes sense because again, racism is systemic and that we could have the strongest family unit or we could have some really strong adults around a child that is experiencing these traumatic experiences. But if we don't change our systems in which this child is interacting in, it could very well be that that's not enough. And so that's really what we meant about how it was definitely unexpected, but not surprising when we think about how much work we have to do around dismantling structural racism and a lot of different systemic inequities that we see in housing and education and transportation, even in opportunities for employment, et cetera. Excellent. And thank you for giving us your time today. I really appreciate your life course perspective approach of looking at being upstream and prevention, as well as understanding the systemic and structural barriers that some folks are facing. So thank you, Dr. Sarvasa, for joining us today. And thank you all for listening in. If you'd like to find out more about our guest this week, you can reach her here. And you can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook for more author interviews.
Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode from the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know. You can find more from us on our website, social media, Sophie, and Sage. And you can find all of these links in the podcast description. Take care.